From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 516, direct access on Windows 10 with guest Richard Hicks. Recorded Monday, December 19th, 2016. Run As Radio is produced each week by Quap Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my regular guests here, Richard Hicks, who's a network and information security expert specializing in Microsoft technologies. He's the founder and principal consultant of Richard M. Hicks Consulting, and is focused on helping organizations large and small implement direct access, PKI, edge security, and cloud networking solutions on Microsoft and third-party platforms, and an eight-time MVP in the cloud and data center and enterprise security award categories, because you can't be an eight-time MVP in the cloud. They haven't had the cloud that long. No, no, no. I sure haven't. No, stretching that a little bit, but eight-time MVP, I'm currently awarded in the cloud and data center expertise and enterprise security. Well, congratulations. As you were saying before we started recording here, first show back in 2009, episode 96 yes. on ISA server. Remember when that was a thing? That was a thing, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's funny. I'd worked with that product since like the late 90s or so, so I'd been you know, around the block a few times just with that. But sure. Yeah, things, uh, times have changed, certainly, for sure. Stuff's evolved. And I think you were one of the first people to talk to me about direct access to uh, and we've had a bunch of conversations around it because it, it was a big deal when it first came out, but just not for the faint of heart, right? Two contiguous yeah. fixed IPs and, you know, the, the, all the IPv6 requirements around it. Like it was not an easy thing to put into the world, but, uh, it was, it's definitely not trivial technology, but it, interestingly enough, it's all Windows platform technologies that everyone should be familiar with. Right. You know, the Active Directory group policy, IPsec certificates. The IPv6 thing, I'll, I'll give people a, a flyer on that one because that was a little bit more challenging. But certainly Windows Server 2012, 2012 R2 reduced some of the complexities of that or abstracted some of that from administrators and right. made it a little bit easier to deploy. And that's where we're starting to see a little bit more adoption. And then the, the rapid adoption really has taken place with the advent of Windows 10. We had a lot of organizations that were still hanging on to Windows 7. And, you know, Windows 7 didn't have full support for all of the features and capabilities and direct access. And right. so as organizations are starting to migrate to Windows 10, they're looking to maximize those deployments and they're looking at deploying, you know, direct access technologies to, you know, take a full advantage of it. Well, so what about Server 2016? Is there mu- is direct access improved in 2016 or is it really come down to the Win 10 client that matters? So most of the functionality is going to be on the Windows 10 client side. So the there actually is no new features and capabilities in Server 2016 direct access. Wow. Other than the fact that they removed support for NAP integration. So you used to be able to integrate uh, Microsoft's network access protection. We did shows on that. What went wrong with NAP? Because I thought it was a really good (laughs) idea. NAP is a funny thing. Uh, NAP is conceptually an awesome idea, but practically speaking, nobody deployed it. Yeah, they just didn't use it. And and it's not just a Microsoft thing either. I I think this goes with some of the other third parties, but Microsoft ultimately got to the point where – 
it was so it was so infrequently deployed they decided to remove it from the product and basically they've for direct access in server 2016 they removed support for nap integration because the client components in windows 10 are gone right if you had direct access on server 2012 r2 and you were supporting windows 7 and windows 8 and you had nap turned on when you deployed a windows 10 client it wouldn't work because the plumbing was actually uh, extracted or removed from the base operating system in Windows. Now, and if I remember, I mean, NAP was all really tied into DHCP. Before I give you an IP address, let's validate that you're worthy to be in my network. Isn't that a good idea? And, it's and a especially great idea. for remote access, right? Uh, let me verify that your health configuration is is uh, valid and meets my specific requirements. Sure. And then I will let you join my network. Excellent idea. Right. The corollary to that was cool, too. If you can't pass, I'll still give you access to the internet. Sure. But I won't give you access to the domain. Or fundamentally access to remediation servers so that you can get into a healthy right, to get configuration up. so that you can have full access to the network conceptually a fantastic idea, but just for some reason was just too pr- impractical to, to deploy or implement or, or something. I don't know. Never went anywhere. But I, I guess if you try and bring a Win 10 device now into a NAP network, it's just going to assign you to that guest mode and leave you there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So uh, absolutely. Because again, the plumbing has been removed from the, right. from the operating system. Wow. That, there's not a lot of obstacles to moving to Win 10, but that's one of them. It may potentially be. You're yeah. absolutely right. That's really interesting. The question is, has that functionality been replaced? I mean, that capability to sort of validate a machine coming into your network, I thought was wildly compelling. Absolutely. Certainly, there are no alternatives or solutions from Microsoft. I right. mean, I'm sure there are a number of third-party vendors that would meet that. What those are, I'm not certain. I'm sure that the third-party vendors would probably have something uh, that would address that. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, w- I would hope they do. Absolutely. So direct access to server 2016, not a big deal. It's it's not that far from 20, uh, 2012 R2, but Win 10. Right. But from a functionality perspective, no. So no new features and functionality in server 2016. There are still compelling reasons to implement direct access right. on server 2016, but those are really f- basically part of the operating system. So, for example, you get the benefits of a more secure Windows platform, right? Mm -hmm. So, fundamentally, the operating system is more secure than it was in previous iterations. There have been some key improvements made to the networking stack. TCP uh, performance is much improved in Windows Server 2016, so direct access obviously benefits from that. But from a feature and functionality perspective, no new changes. The, The real advantages come from the Windows 10 client. So, in Windows 7, of course, it didn't have support for things like null encryption for IPHTTPS, which is an IPv6 transition technology leveraged by direct access. Basically, the challenge there was that it was a a performance issue. So you were basically taking uh, IPsec encrypted traffic, which is fundamentally what direct access is, IPsec encrypted traffic, and you were encrypting it again with SSL and TLS. And so that protocol overhead and the requisite CPU and and memory consumption on the server side is what led to degraded performance. Beginning with Windows 8 and continuing into Windows 10, they introduced support for null encrypted cipher suites for the IPHTTPS tunnel. So we are not double encrypting that uh, connection. So that in terms of performance and scalability really opened things up a great deal. With regards to uh, high availability, Windows 7 clients did not be uh, did not fully support geographic redundancy. So in server 2012, 
beginning in server 2012, Microsoft introduced support for uh, geographic redundancy where you could have multiple entry points in multiple geographies. Right. And the Windows 8 and Windows 10 clients are aware of all of the entry points, will transparently select the best one, and if their entry point is not available, they will automatically fail over. So is best like ping time? Is that, that the measurement? Actually, the client will measure the round-trip time of an HTTP GET to each of the entry points, oh, okay. and whichever one responds the quickest is the one it believes is the best uh, entry point. Now, <laughs> there are some challenges there because that the uh, site selection method is a bit rudimentary and doesn't often yield the best results. So mm-hmm. we use some third-party solutions like GSLB platforms to to address that and augment that and, and make that better. But fundamentally, those technologies are supported by Windows 10 where they're not for Windows 7. Right. So we had organizations, we had organizations who said, you know, we like the concept and the idea of direct access, but I have Windows 7 clients. I can't take advantage of uh, geographic redundancy. I can't take advantage of the performance and scalability improvements in Server 2012. So I'm just going to hold off. Right. Now that they've gotten to Server 2012, 2012 R2, 2016, now they're moving the clients to Windows 10. This becomes a much, much more compelling solution. And we're starting to see a, a rapid rise in the adoption uh, and deployment of direct access along with uh, Windows 10. And that, that just sort of seamless, I get on the internet and within a few seconds... I'm on my home network, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So for the uninitiated and the uninformed in the audience, yes, direct access is completely and totally seamless and transparent. So you can think of it as remote access at the machine level as opposed to the user level. Right. The machine connects to the corporate network anytime it has an active internet connection, which often occurs before the user even logs on to their laptop. What that means is that when the user logs on to the laptop, they're actually validating their authentication against the live domain controller on your corporate network. <laughs> Gone are the days of password synchronization issues and those types of things because if you if your password is out of sync, it doesn't matter. We'll just go uh, – the connection goes to the domain controller, to the PDC. You get your new password. Everything's happy and you log in. So so those types of things are, are uh, really important, especially to IT administrators, help desk folks who have to answer those calls when, when VPN clients get out of sync and have to reset passwords and so forth. So tremendously compelling solution for sure. It hits me then that if I have disabled somebody's account – that just turning on the machine with that account, as soon as it gets connection to the internet, whether you've logged it or not, it'll probably it's implement the policy changes. Without question. And wow. so the user would not be able to log on. And of course, in that scenario, there are additional steps that have to be taken because the machine does still have access, right? So you've not revoked, it, you may have revoked the user, right? but you've not revoked the machine. So there's some additional steps that you have to take, and it's it's actually fairly simple. You simply um, deactivate the uh, machine's uh, Active Directory computer account, right? and uh, if they are connected, all you have to do is just terminate their existing uh, security associations, and bam, the, the client will try to reconnect, but it will fail because its computer account in AD, which is one of the authentication factors, right. uh, doesn't pass. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's just when you think about stolen machines and things, yep. the fact that with direct access, that's probably your fastest way to to disable and protect uh, the access to the network. Without question. Yeah. Yep. 
It's really, really interesting. I don't have to be logged in. It's the machine doing the negotiation. That's a really cool aspect to think about in terms of security for this thing. You know, I don't I don't need to recall the the past eight years ago with 2008 and all the challenges it had there. What are the requirements on the server side when it comes to deploying direct access? I mean, I presume a fixed IP. Obviously, fixed IPs is, is crucial. So Windows Server 2016, you can still do it with 2012 R2 if you wish, but right. we're, we're moving forward, right? 2016, yeah. uh, Active Directory domain join. The server has to be joined to the domain. It can be implemented with one or two network interfaces. Two network interfaces is ideal and recommended, but it can be done with one. Gone are the requirements for the two consecutive public IPs. You don't have to do that anymore. You can safely place the direct access server behind an edge security device, uh, even performing NAT if you wish, which is, again, recommended. Oh, really? It's recommended to NAT it into the net? Absolutely, yeah. So you can just NAT that into DMZ. So no public IP address is required on the DA server at all. And so the two NIC configurations, so we're natting to one of the NICs and then the other NIC is communicating to the domain? So in yeah, in a best practice deployment scenario, you, the direct access server would actually have two network interfaces. Right. It would have its uh, external interface public facing in a public facing perimeter or DMZ network. Right. Internal network interface would either be on the LAN directly or ideally in a dedicated uh, isolated DMZ or perimeter network that isolates the direct access server from the internal network. So it has to, the traffic would have to come in, basically cross two security boundaries to get into the network. Uh, the edge facing one authenticated and terminated at the direct access server. And then when they made a request to an internal corporate resource, like a file server or something like that, that would pass yet another security enforcement point, that being the, the DMZ slash LAN uh, DMZ network. Yep. Yeah, and, and of course, I don't like the idea of having two DMZs, but I see how you're describing this. Is that second mm-hmm. one is just specific to to direct access? It's a mini DMZ. It's not correct. There's no other services and, in there. And fundamentally, we're talking about remote access. So anytime these users are coming in, we want to make sure that uh, you know we're controlling traffic, but more importantly, that we're logging it for forensic review sure. later in the event we have a compromised laptop. Now. The advantage of a direct access solution is inherently more secure and you have uh, much more assurance that the client connections are valid because unlike traditional VPN, which is user-based, this is a machine-based solution. So Mm -hmm. there is a de facto multi-factor authentication built into the solution. So I can't make a direct access connection with any machine. I must have a machine that's been provisioned for it. Right. So what that means is I have to have a client that supports uh, direct access. The machine must have an active directory computer account. It must have a, a certificate issued from your PKI. I'll qualify that by saying in most deployment scenarios, there are some scenarios in which you don't have to have that, but it's recommended. And so when the machine connects, the direct access server will authenticate the machine first using its computer account and its certificate, at which point the first tunnel is established. Then when the user logs on, the machine certificate is validated again, as well as the user's Kerberos ticket. So the user has to provide their logon credentials as well. Nice. So the Multi-factor authentication is essentially the device becomes the something you have. And the something you know is your username and password. So again, as opposed to traditional VPN, where if I can extract somebody's credentials from a user... Any device will work. I can connect from any device, right? 
assuming you don't have multi-factor authentication. So multi-factor authentication for VPNs is really crucial. It is not as important in a direct access solution because it does have a certain level of multi-factor authentication-ness built in. That's awesome. Uh, Richard, give me one second here because this episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open source software for disaster relief organizations. One of our leading projects called Already focuses on getting volunteers into the right place at the right time. HDBox is deploying this application into the field in January 2017, right now, and they need your help. Go to hdbox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HDBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. So is there any equivalent third-party VPN client like Direct Access? Because the one thing that I love about Direct Access is there's no pop-ups. Because pop-ups are evil, right? I mean, the number of times I've dealt with third-party VPNs, and I've had plenty, where yes. it, I don't care what you're typing right now, I want to tell you, your VPN pipe is down. Yes. You know, that's the aggravating part. So without question, uh, there are uh, alternative solutions to direct access. So one of the, uh, I don't want to say fatal flaws, but one of the drawbacks to direct access is that it's limited in scope. Right. So for example, it is designed, direct access was designed for IT managed corporate-owned laptops. Right. They must be running Windows 7 Enterprise or Ultimate, Windows 8 or 10 Enterprise, or Windows 8 or 10 Education. Right. So if you're doing something else, it doesn't support direct access. Yeah, it's not for the home user. Exactly. It's not for the home user. It's not for a small office kind of thing. Right. And, of course, there are a number of third parties who were who have implemented direct access-like functionality for their VPN clients. Microsoft has actually joined this uh, <laughs> this group as well. Microsoft realizes that the domain is, I hate to say this, it's almost legacy. As we move towards the cloud, yeah. the domain is naturally going to go away. The way we provision and manage devices is fundamentally going to change. So no longer can we rely on all of our devices that we have to secure. No longer can we rely on them to be Active Directory domain joined. It might be the user's tablet. It might be a, uh, a laptop that they own or a machine that they own. And so we need uh, additional uh, ways to do this. Third parties have been doing this for quite some time, and it's basically where they automatically trigger the VPN. Microsoft has introduced the same functionality and started in Windows 8, but it's really kind of gaining some momentum in Windows 10 with auto-trigger VPN, where they have the ability to automatically trigger the VPN based on a number of different factors or parameters. Right. You can do it when the machine comes on. Uh, you can do it when a specific application launches or makes a request to the corporate network and those types of things. And so from that perspective, Microsoft has been very successful in building new technologies into the platform that that allow us to provide a direct access-like experience for non-managed machines. And again, in the Microsoft world now, the domain is ancient history, right? They want everybody to move to the cloud, and in the cloud, domains don't exist. And so we are managing all of these devices using fundamentally different paradigms. Typically, that's going to be an Intune or a third-party MDM solution. And if you have those solutions in place, then you can implement Windows 10 uh, auto-trigger VPN and gain the advantages of a direct access-like experience for your non-managed clients. And I'll qualify that by saying direct access-like in that it is a seamless and transparent experience, but it 
differs somewhat from direct access in that it's not at the machine level. It's still at the user level, but we've automated the process. And we've added some granularity, by we I mean Microsoft, has added some granularity in that only specific applications can trigger the VPN, only specific applications can talk over the VPN. On You could even control it down to the protocol and port uh, level, even destination and source address. So you can say, when this application launches, it can talk to these servers on these services and ports. But other applications running on the same laptop cannot use the VPN. Nice. That's different from traditional yeah. VPN where it's basically a conduit. And you're talking about the Microsoft Enterprise Mobility Suite, right? Uh, it's a part of the Enterprise yeah. Mobility Suite, but this functionality is basically built into the Windows 10 client. Right. And, it's a, and those management interfaces are exposed to MDM platforms like Intune and probably some third-party solutions as well. Because, yeah, I mean, obviously the problem with direct access is there's no client for phone. And in... Of course. You know, everybody wants... The, their corporate phone to have access to docs, and that means they've got to go across that VPN connection. Or again, you know, uh, non-managed you know devices of any type. That right. could be Macintosh devices. It could be Linux platforms. It could be my tablet running, you know, uh, Windows RT for for all I care. Mm-hmm. As long as it supports Ike V2 VPN, which the world is kind of moving towards, then we're in good shape. And uh, again, all of these management interfaces are exposed through MDM. I think the real drawback to it is the fact that it does require a new management platform, but as the world kind of migrates naturally towards that, uh, I, I think it'll become a much more palatable solution. I think the important thing to remember is that the the Auto Trigger VPN is not necessarily a replacement for direct access, at least in my view. Right. It's a very complementary technology to address the, the unique remote access needs of each platform. Uh, oftentimes, I'll deploy both for organizations simply for the fact that we want to take advantage of the unique capabilities that direct access provides for IT-managed, IT-owned devices. But for those non-managed devices, we can still provide a level of access and even replicate some of the direct access features and benefits for those devices as well. So the direct access is still bringing a better experience going into the domain than the enterprise mobility suite stuff that will will give you some access, but you don't have the same. I mean, the big thing from in my perspective, when you get on direct access is right away, I can apply group policy to your machine. Like I can <laughs> change, I yeah. can, I can deploy software. I can change rules. You know, there's a lot of stuff I can do once I have access to a domain joint machine. Absolutely. And there's no question there are significant advantages to using the Active Directory domain. Uh, One of them being is that this is obviously a very mature and very well understood management solution, one which has been extended and enhanced for many, many years. Even the most junior uh, Windows administrators would have a a grasp of group policy management. And so deploying direct access using Active Directory and group policy is just, you know, really simple and fundamental at that point. An MDM solution adds some complexity. It adds a new platform. Uh, it adds some licensing requirements, of course, so there's some some limitations there. But you're right. If you have an active directory, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, if you are a, uh, you know, you're a Fortune 100 organization, you're a Walmart, a Bank of America, uh, a General Motors, these types of organizations, you're going to be heavily invested in active directory, and your active directory is not going away anytime right. soon. Not today, tomorrow, next week, next month, probably not even next year, right? I think Fortune 100 is even too small a grab there, Richard. I think once you get <laughs> to a, a hundred desktops, you really yeah. need Active Directory. Once you're at a point where you cannot physically walk around to all the workstations in an afternoon, yes. Like how, how else would you manage the many machines? 
Well, uh, well, again, if I'm wearing my Microsoft hat, I'm telling you that the world is moving towards Intune and other types right. of mobile device management platforms. But what I'm saying is that that may work on the small end of that scale, yeah. small and medium-sized businesses. Even if you have an AD today and you're supporting 100 users, it might be uh, a worthwhile investment to migrate to an MDM platform uh, and then manage them as opposed to not using group policy. Right. And the feature parity is not even close between sure. – MDM and Active Directory. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're, I think you're giving up some today, but maybe in the future that's a more palatable solution. But no, I'm with you, and I'm, I'm with you 100%, Rich. Uh, the Active Directory is definitely the preferred way to do management today, but looking ahead to the future, that may not be, may not always be the case. Yeah, I just can't, I'm, I can't imagine, because Intune, all of those solutions mean I've got to have a working internet connection. Of course. It's a pretty safe bet that you're going to have one, but it's just interesting to consider the possibility of what if we do have an outage? How functional is my organization without AD? Like it's, yeah, I'm just, I can't imagine. And maybe it's come old. Maybe that's what it is. I've been doing this too long. <laughs> you know, I, I had, I did deploy, you know, primary controllers and PDCs and BDCs back in the day mm. and looked at Active oh. Directory with a sniff test, you know. Yep. I'm, I still hosted a, a domain inside of my home lab mm-hmm. that has traces of server 2000 in it, you know, for wow, the very wow. first editions for better or worse. And I'm not, I don't, I don't know that I'm proud of that, but I'm always, and I'm always thinking about, you know, am I being <laughs> held back because yeah. of these old experiences? Well, I, I will share with you from experience, you are certainly not alone. Yes. Um, as I'm helping customers migrate their infrastructure to the cloud, oftentimes, they are basically building new infrastructure in the cloud that is Active Directory based. Right. We're actually putting Active Directory domain controllers on Azure or AWS VMs. Yep. I've deployed uh, Active Directory and PKI solutions uh, and direct access on cloud platforms like Azure and AWS on on countless occasions. Sure. And customers love it. I've extended uh, existing on-premises direct access deployments by building uh, direct access entry points in the cloud for um, scalability and flexibility. Deploying direct access in the cloud is a little bit different than on-premises, but not uh, a huge challenge. There's just a couple of gotchas that you need to be aware of. But yeah, it's it's still an excellent solution today, even uh, you know even today's cloudy world, as it were. Sure. Well, and I, I got to presume anybody deploying direct access is deploying it on-premise in a VM? For the most part. Yeah. So uh, I would say that small to mid-sized businesses without question on the large end of the scale. So when you're talking about supporting uh, many, many thousands or even tens of thousands of direct access clients, right. there are some drawbacks to deploying direct access on virtual infrastructures. Direct access is a technology that is very cpu and network intensive. Right. And so there's a lot of encapsulation and decapsulation, a lot of encryption going on for a lot of different connected clients. And what we have found is that you pay a bit of a performance penalty running through a hypervisor, which is easily absorbable when you're on the small end to the even the midsize. Mm-hmm. But for the very largest deployments, we tend to deploy those on dedicated hardware simply because of the performance uh, is just not what it is. Even today, uh, on today's virtualization platforms, it's still not on par with dedicated hardware. and But that's only at the very highest end of the scale, though. Yeah, and I would wonder if you, you know, I would think I would want to assign NICs to VMs so that I do have that network isolation. And oh, you yeah. could use an offloading NIC so that you're doing most of TCP to negotiation separately. I mean, could you go so far as to do TLS termination? I guess you don't need to if you're doing IPsec anyway. 
So, well, yes and no. So if you're supporting Windows 7 clients, there's an advantage to offloading SSL and TLS. Right. Although it's not formally supported by Microsoft, mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a functional solution on the vast majority of application delivery controllers or ADCs out there. Uh, basically, what we do is for the Windows 7 clients that are double encrypting, we can effectively terminate SSL on an ADC and at least offload the SSL double encryption from the server. Right. Which which provides significant scalability and performance benefits uh, as well as uh, uh, performance improvements for the client. The client, the Windows 7 client would still have to double encrypt, but by and large, most corporate laptops today have enough reserve processing power to absorb that. Where it falls over is on the server side where it has to double encrypt for all of the connected clients, not just one. So in that case, there are some advantages to doing that. But you're right. You can, and I have deployed direct access on virtual infrastructures for some very large deployments. And the workarounds are just deploy more VMs where I might be able to get away with five physical servers. I may have to deploy eight or nine or ten VMs to get the same uh, relative or the same effective processing power. And I could see you'd want to spread them across multiple machines. I mean, obviously for redundancy, but like I said, this is remarkably CPU (laughs) intensive. It it doesn't do you any good to put all eight VMs on the same host, right? Uh Yeah, that's kind of defeating the purpose. As a matter of fact, that exacerbates the problem. Sure. Spread them out over different hosts. I've had customers deploy dedicated virtual hosts for it. So in other words, they want the advantage of deploying on a virtual infrastructure, right. things like snapshots and migrations and, and all of the goodness that we've come to know and love with sure. virtualization platforms. But they still have that, that they need that performance. So they'll actually deploy a dedicated virtualization host for the direct access servers. Uh, that's another alternative as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I like VMs just from a manageability, mobility perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now I start to envision a, a dedicated VM host for direct access is having multiple NICs. Yeah, and lots of absolutely. CPU, not a lot of disk, mm-hmm. and uh, but just focused on this particular problem and running multiple instances of direct access per host, at least but, two hosts. And, and again, that's that's really only at the at, at the highest end. That's from, from my very very large deployments that we've had to do that. For sure, thousands of users. Yeah, you're talking. Well, I'm talking about organizations that might need to support twenty five or twenty five thousand or more uh, clients total. Yeah. So you have direct access servers that might be hosting two and three and four thousand connections, which gets very difficult to do on a single VM. Sure. So you absolutely have to break that workload out. By the way, uh, just for anybody listening, direct access is a workload that does not scale up. Very well. It's right. much more conducive to sailing out. Right. Uh, I've run into customers who have had TCP port exhaustion issues and things like that, where it, it's always better to scale out than it is to scale up when you're looking at a direct access workload. And again, this is really the vast majority of direct access deployments that I do are virtual, and they're very successful, and they're very happy. As long as you perform the capacity planning up front to understand the workload and understand how many supported clients you're going to have, what types of clients they're going to be, and then plan accordingly. So and just straight Windows clustering with NLB? Is that normal? Uh, well, yeah, that's that's uh, that's an option. It's certainly not the best option. No? Yeah, so <laughs> Direct Access does support uh, load balancing with NLB, right? right? So you can configure load balance cl- clusters using NLB. NLB has some challenges, though. Uh, first of all, it's broadcast-based, so yeah. it, it 
it's the you know it, it suffers from negative scalability. As you add nodes to the cluster, the broadcast traffic goes up so much that it becomes kind of a drain. Oh yeah. I always recommend that customers deploy dedicated load balancers. That way, we can uh, get the full value and benefit of the load balancing. There is no negative scalability issues. Uh, we can also support many more nodes. NLB only supports up to eight nodes. Uh, four is about the effective upper limit. You start re- the point of diminishing returns is about four. So after that, it's you're you're probably wasting your time using an external load balancer. You can support up to thirty two nodes in a single cluster, man, and uh, works very very well that way. Yeah, no, I I I've spent enough time with NLB to know once you're past four or five, you're asking for trouble. Yep. Yeah. Quick, very effective solution at the low end. So yeah, sure. uh, I've deployed, deployed those for many customers at the small end. But anytime we you know, have a customer who's absolutely serious about performance and scalability, uh, we recommend that they get on a, uh, on a proper load balancer. And there are some very cost-effective solutions out there today uh, that, can, uh, that you can uh, use. You don't have to spend a fortune on a load balancer. There are some uh, excellent ones or even sure. some free ones out there that are uh, outstanding solutions. But I well. got to think at the low end, you should be in the cloud, right? The OneDrive for business and the Office 365 offering, like, that just makes your mm-hmm. life so much simpler that, that anybody looking at VPN on-prem is either dealing with legacy or they're bigger than that, that they, mm-hmm. they still want, they, they're yep. still running home infrastructure and want to keep it that way. It's really a mid-size solution. You bet. And, and again, if you're moving to the cloud, doesn't mean you have to necessarily give up direct access. Sure. If you deploy an Active Directory infrastructure in the cloud, yep. you can absolutely deploy direct access there. Uh, the challenge becomes provisioning clients because, right. again, you have to uh, the client has to be joined to the domain and has to be able to accept the group policies. If it's in the cloud and there's no infrastructure with which to connect to, how do you do that? You have a chicken in the egg right. <laughs> process there. The good news is that you can use offline domain join to to uh, effectively deploy Windows 8 and Windows 10 clients, Mm -hmm. provision them for domain joining, and assign them all of the direct access settings as well. So uh, I have customers who have deployed uh, infrastructure entirely in the cloud, no on-premises infrastructure whatsoever, and they have uh, hundreds of domain join Windows 10 clients. Uh, all of which were provisioned using offline domain join. The drawback there is it doesn't support Windows 7. Offline domain join does work with Windows 7, but you cannot use it to provision the direct access client settings, which obviously if you don't have an on-premises network to physically plug into, you're kind of dead in the water. So as long as you're supporting Windows 8 and Windows 10, you're good to go. Nice. Hey, Richard, always fun to talk to you. Suddenly a half hour has disappeared and I uh, feel like there's more questions to go. We've got lots to talk about here. I'm sure we'll talk again in, in the near future. I bet we will. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. Radio.